Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be together. I want to thank you all for your prayers. This is my family. Uh, I took some time to be out of town uh, this past week. Uh, we went and spent a week in Alabama, and uh, it's my wife's family, and I come home to you uh, bringing you glad tidings from a sister church uh, that we were able to uh, worship with, uh, dear family and friends that are there that we love dearly. Uh, I come back to you uh, well-fed, um, very well encouraged, and at the same time, uh, well exhausted, if that's a phrase. Um, because we did a lot of eating and a lot of playing of games, lots of late nights and early mornings, a lot more eating. Um, I don't know if I've ever consumed that much food. Um, having three solid meals every day plus snacks, bad idea for this guy. Um, we even had a whole dessert table that you had to walk by. It was like a it was like a practice and discipline that I failed at. And to God be the glory that he sustained me through this new year, through his word and red velvet cake. And here we are today. And so I'm thankful to be here and to be together. And uh, thank you for your prayers as we were away. Well, we are uh, jumping back uh, into our study through 1 Corinthians. We just wrapped up our season of Advent, a very beautiful season, where we were reminded of the words of hope and the words of encouragement that we see uh, through the Gospels and the hope that we have of the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today we come back to 1 Corinthians, where we've been uh, for quite some time now in a series that we've called Holiness, uh, the calling and the challenge for the church, and we find ourselves back in chapter 11. Now, if you remember before we jumped into the Advent season, we were already beginning chapter 11, and we talked about how Paul was now beginning this new section on what we were calling uh, orderly worship for the church. And we're going to kind of see this played out from chapter 11 all the way through uh, chapter 14 as we walk together. Now, the last time we met, uh, you probably remember it was a very uh, interesting and yet encouraging and challenging conversation on uh, the roles of men, women, gender, head coverings, and what was appropriate for worship. And I thought, wow, what a great passage to lead us into Advent. And so now we come out on the other side of that and we pick up on Paul's words where he's now going to write specifically about orderly worship and how it pertains to the Lord's Supper itself. Now, as we read this text today, you're going to hear a familiar passage this morning that we read together every Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper. So a, part, a portion of the passage that we have today is the one that we do read once we come to the end of the service. And as we do with the end of each service, we will partake of the Lord's Supper together. Now, as a way of reminder, we take the Lord's Supper because we are being reminded in that moment of what it is that Jesus Christ has done. You're being reminded in that moment of the hope and the grace that we now have in him because of him, and we come to the table to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ will one day return again. So this moment that's going to come later in our service is, is not something that we as a church take lightly. It's not something that we as believers in Christ really should ever take for granted. And we're going, to, we're going to see more of that as we get into our passage this morning because that is exactly what Paul is going to share with the Corinthian Christians as he writes to them about the Lord's Supper. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to encourage you to join me now. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we are going to begin reading in verse 17. And once you have found your place in the Word of God, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. 
Now we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, apparently, Paul has been told at this point that there were divisions in the Corinthian church, amongst the Corinthian Christians, over the topic and the subject of the Lord's Supper. And so what Paul does this morning for us in our text today is he's going to respond to those divisions that have now been created by the Corinthian Christians. Now, honestly, one would think at this point that the Lord's Supper itself would not be a hot-button topic. One would wonder, how is it possible that the Lord's Supper, something that we clearly see in the Word of God, how would this even become a controversial subject? And yet, for the Corinthian Christians, it actually became quite a scandalous affair within the church. And so Paul is actually going to break this text into four main points for us today, and we're going to talk about them together. First, we're going to see Paul address the problem. Second, we'll then see Paul move from addressing the problem to then speaking to the tradition. Thirdly, we'll see Paul go from speaking to the tradition to then calling for the examination, which will lead us to our fourth and final point, which is where Paul will then give us the welcome. And Paul's goal through each of these points that we're going to cover today was the same as it's always been, which was to continue to unify the church around the Word of God. 
It was to unify the church around their worship of God. You see, Paul wanted to bring the people together regardless of where they had come from, what they had been through, and whatever their socioeconomic status had been upon arriving. So let's just go ahead and jump back into this text this morning and see how Paul now addresses the issues around the Lord's Supper. If we look again at verses 17 through 22, we see that Paul begins with the problem. Notice how Paul opens in verse 17 by saying, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Clearly, these gatherings amongst the Corinthian Christians, instead of coming together for the, for the purpose of in, encouraging one another and, and building up one another and edifying one another, they had now become times where the people were being discouraged. They had come a time where people were now becoming divided and, and being torn down based upon their status in life. And this tearing down had, had nothing to do with the Word of God. I don't want us to, to miss this. The people were not being convicted by this point. The people were being torn down because they were being challenged by their sin. Rather, they were being torn down because maybe they didn't have the same wealth as the person sitting next to them, or probably in the Corinthian Christian case, as the person sitting across the way from them. And so Paul says in verse 18, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now again, Paul acknowledges that clearly more divisions existed than what he had previously written about in the church. And he actually believes the reports that he's been given to be true because of what he already knows about them. But here's what's interesting at this point. The language that Paul is now using is not the normal, harsh condemnation that we would get from Paul. But rather what Paul does in this opening is he actually politely acknowledges the problem and actually doesn't even seek to condemn the people at all or to throw down on the church at this point like we would expect from Paul. I mean, some of us upon reading this would probably read this and say, Paul, here's your moment. Go get them. Like turning a dog loose on somebody, right? But that wasn't Paul's goal. In fact, in verse 19, he said, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now again, I want us to pay attention to the phrase, must, there must be factions, and the word factions itself. Because again, what Paul is talking about when he speaks of these factions, he's not speaking of, of normal theological differences that existed in the church, but rather what Paul does is he points to the fact that these divisions that exist are purely selfish. And Paul says, factions based upon selfishness, is okay. Now again, don't misinterpret what Paul is trying to say in this moment. Don't hear Paul's words and think, okay, so if I'm being selfish, clearly that's a good thing. That's not what Paul was talking about at all because we shouldn't be the type of people who are looking for a fight. We shouldn't be the type of people who are simply trying to conform the church and, and fit the Word of God around what we think it ought to mean. In fact, Paul, in, in thinking this way, probably had more of the, the biblical factions in mind where, where we're going to see, not only for the Corinthian Christians, but we're seeing today as well within the Western church where God is going to continue to set apart 
His people who are truly walking in the Word and are seeking to be faithful to Him, He is going to continue to draw them apart from those who are not. So maybe the the passages to have in mind here is to go back to the Gospels and, and see where it talks about the wheat versus the tares. Clearly, there's a distinguishing difference. Or maybe go back to the Gospels where it talks about how Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. Clearly, there's a distinguishable difference. Or maybe go back to the wisdom that's found according to the Word of God that we see throughout the Psalms and Proverbs when it talks about there will be a separation or a distinction between those who are seeking biblical wisdom and those who are not. You see, for Paul, he understood that there will be a spiritual and divine division that will take place in the church. And Paul says that this may be a good thing because it's going to be found in how people respond in faithfulness to our sovereign God. So you see, for Paul, factions and divisions based upon the spiritual and the divine, which is in the the word itself, those things can actually be a good thing. In fact, Paul says to us that these divisions could have a a, a purifying and a, a refining effect on the church that allows itself to continue to seek and to grow into holiness. It could be a good thing for for a church that that seeks to grow in its understanding of the word and its need for sanctification. It's going to be a good thing for those who truly want to walk with the Lord versus those who who show up and they just want to go through the motion and they may never even know the Lord in the first place. You see, Paul is now giving a sobering reminder that there are going to be those who will never walk with church. They may enter the building, but they will never walk with the Lord. Why? Because they don't want to be challenged. Why? Because they don't want to read the Word. Why? Because they don't want to read things and and worship uh, with people to be encouraged and edified according to the Word. Why? Because they don't want to, to set apart time for worship because they believe they have better things to do with their time. Why? Because they don't want to be confronted with their sin. They don't want to be sharpened. And here's what Paul says. For that division... Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because here's the reality for the believer. Our call is to keep moving forward as we faithfully seek what the Word of God has called us to. So Paul probably had all this in mind when he was thinking about what good could actually come from division. However, what we're going to see as we continue to move through these verses is Paul's actually going to address the problem with what was happening around the Lord's Supper within the Corinthian church. So look with me, verses 20 uh, through 22. Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another one gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Paul answers his own question. He says, no, I will not. Now at this moment, Paul begins to shock the believers by saying, listen, 
You are correct in the fact that you are partaking of a meal. But the reality of that meal is, is it's not the Lord's Supper at all. In fact, Paul says that it cannot be the Lord's Supper since the meal has now created divisions within the church. And then Paul gives the reasons for these divisions. He says, listen, during your supper, there's, there's a section of people, the poor, and we're not, we're not talking about the homeless that we find out on our streets. He's talking about the people who may not have the same affluency and, and wealth as other people in the church. He says, there's poor among you, and they are sitting in your church, and they remain hungry. And at the same time, you've got another group of people on the other side of the church who are wealthy and in their wealth they are overindulging in the blessing that the Lord has given them. You see, here was Paul's problem. The wealthy were eating a lavish meal. They were drinking expensive wine. They were eating in excess. And with the leftovers they had, instead of sharing them, they were wasting them. While the poor who sat in the church, who sat under the same teachings, who sat under the same worship. They had nothing to eat. They had nothing to drink. And they were being neglected in what was supposed to be a meal shared together to remind the church about the goodness and the grace of God. And yet, the church was not sharing together. We then get to verse two or 22, and Paul calls the church, especially the wealthy within the church, out. he calls them out on what it is that they're now doing. He says, Paul says this, he says, listen, I'm not going to commend you on what it is that you think you're doing. Think about this. The actions of the wealthy were showing that they despised the poor among them. And Paul takes this one step further. He says, listen, you're not just despising the poor among you, you're despising the church of God. Why? Because the church is not caring for one another. The church was now looking down upon the person that was sitting next to them as opposed to seeing how, no matter where, where they had come from or what they had been through, how we were now together because of the sovereign grace of God. In other words, when, the, when you go back and look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and you get to verse 45, and it talks about how they sold their goods and possessions and gave to each person as he had need, they were not meeting the needs of the people sitting next to them. And in fact, they were doing the opposite. They were flaunting their wealth in their face. And so Paul says, man, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm astonished by this. And therefore... I can't commend you for what you're doing. I can't sit here and, and, and say to you today that what you're doing is the Lord's Supper because it's not. And so Christian, we have to ask ourselves, man, what about us? When we come to worship, when we come to the tables, which we're going to do later this morning, do we come to the tables and we look around and think that, that we're better than some of the people around us? Do we walk in and and say of ourselves, well, man, thank God I'm not going through what that person is going through? Do we walk in and think, I'm smarter? I have more money? Do we look around and say, man, when I compare myself with the person sitting next to me over here, clearly I am more in tune with life because I have more culture than they do? 
My children are better off, more well-rounded than, than theirs. Paul would say to us in this moment, man, if you think this way, think again. Because here's the reality. We are here together not because of us. We are here together not because of anything that we have done. We are, we are not here together because Jesus looked upon us and said, wow, this person is awesome. Granted, he did say that about us, but he said that about us in the midst of our mess. No, we're here because the grace of God allowed it. We're here because of what Jesus Christ did. Not what we did, but what he has done. And if we come together and think that all of a sudden we are better than other people, we are better than other folks around us, other people in our community, we think that we're better than other places, then Paul says, you know what, you may be a part of the problem. But here's the good news. Because for the next three points, Paul is actually going to point us to hope. And as we continue to reveal, uh, read, Paul is going to reveal more of that hope. So look with me as we move from the problem to now looking at verses 23 through 26, where we now see the tradition. Now, here is a very familiar passage that we read each week as we take the Lord's Supper together. So just read it with me again, verse 23 through 26. And as a uh, foreshadowing of what's going to come later, we're going to take communion. We're going to read this again. Okay, so just be ready for that. All right, so here we go. Verse uh, 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, upon initial reading of this passage, you probably pick up clearly that, that Paul's loosely borrowing off of Luke's account of Jesus' word, uh, words when he spoke at the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul actually does this for a historical purpose because he wanted the church to see how the Lord's Supper was to be taken. In other words, Paul wanted them to understand that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it's not just about the act of the Supper itself, but rather it's about the intent you see, Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to see the self-giving love that Jesus had for others even when his life was being threatened. You see, when Jesus comes to the point with the disciples where he's taking the Lord's Supper with them, he knows what is coming next. And yet he was still focused on serving others feeding others, whereas the Corinthian Christians and the Corinthian church only cared for themselves and they were unwilling to serve. Now, if I could chase a rabbit for a minute. There has been some debate over this passage as to what Jesus meant when he was talking about the bread and the cup being the body and the blood. And some have argued that when you take communion, the bread and the juice literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus when we partake of it. Two simple thoughts I want to give you on that. First of all, no. Yeah, we close in prayer, right? No, this, this is not at all what Jesus was talking about. The Gospels don't support it. The original language doesn't even support that. Where did we come up with that nonsense? Second point I want to give you simply, I mean, come on, gross. Like, really? 
Again, in talking about Luke's account here, Paul's focus was on intent. Intent was the key. You see, in the breaking of the bread, the breaking of the bread actually symbolizes Jesus' love for his people that he would allow his body to be broken for them. Did you hear that? Jesus allowed his body to be broken. He didn't have to, but he did. A moment that would come at the crucifixion of Christ Jesus our Lord. Then there's the partaking of the cup. The cup which represents the blood of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin and to usher in a new covenant that we are now under, which is the covenant of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And so Paul teaches the tradition of the meal. The bread itself, the cup itself, represents the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is there to remind the church of what has been done, the price that has now been paid, the sin which has now been atoned for, so that we could be reunited with God. It's why we can sing, Christ is all. Because He is all that we need. He is all that was needed for atonement. You see, the tradition that Paul speaks of here reminds the church of what Jesus Christ did. Not who we are. Not what it is that that we have done. If anything, here's the reality. We were a people who were dead in our sin, who have now been made alive in Christ because of what it is that He has done. That is the tradition of the table. As believers in Christ, we can come to the table because of what Christ has done. We can come to the table because of the grace and the forgiveness that has been shown to us by Jesus Christ our Lord. We can come to the table and celebrate. Because Christ paid the penalty that we deserved. And so, brothers and sisters, do we see the love and the sacrifice that was shared with us at the table? Every Sunday, we come to the table at this church to not only be reminded of what Christ has done, but but to see what we are now called to do. We come to the table And a table reminds us of of how we are now called to live. Which is sacrificially serving one another. Not trying to compartmentalize our, our worship and our church into our own schedules, but rather seeing needs, meeting needs to the grace and the glory of God who met all of our needs through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's upon this explanation of the tradition that Paul gets to the third point he's trying to make for the Corinthian Christians, which is found in verses 27 through 32, which is where Paul calls the church to a time of examination. Now again, I want us to notice how Paul now draws the conclusion that partaking of the Lord's Supper is not just some sort of formal ritualistic celebration as some have made it out to be, but rather in coming to the table, it should also lead us to a time of examination. And as we read in this passage Paul, again, in this examination, he's not looking for perfection. 
But rather what Paul is doing, he's now calling out the Corinthian Christians who are partaking of the table in an unworthy manner because of their mistreatment of other believers who are now a part of their church. And so in their mistreatment of the fellow believers, Paul says, it is revealing your heart which shows how you despise Jesus. You see, they were taking a moment of sacrificial, selfless giving and making it about selfish grasping. In fact, Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, again, I've heard many people use this passage to mean a lot of things. But for Paul, I think the meaning is very simple and clear. Paul says, before you come to the table, ask yourself this question. Does my actions from this week match what I believe when I come to the table? Did my words this week match what I believe before I come to the table? Notice Paul's not sitting there saying, look around the church and sit in judgment over people. He's not looking around the church and saying, listen, you see that person over there? Oh, I know they sinned. Oh, I don't even know why they're coming to the table. No, that's not what he's calling for there. He's calling for self-examination. Examine yourself. It's kind of going to be similar to what's going to happen to us when we stand before the judgment seat of God. Guess what we're not doing that day? Blaming other people for our sins. No, it's just us at that moment. And there's not going to be any justification in that moment. You're not going to be able to look up at the, at the judgment seat of God and say, but God... But what about this? What about this? What about this? No. That moment has passed. A judgment will be rendered that day. And so bringing this back to the Lord's table, Paul says, before you come to the table, do some self-examination. You see, we need to make sure that our lives are in accord with the sacrificial and selfless love of Jesus Christ. Now again, Paul is not looking for perfection. Because again, the table reminds us of the need for forgiveness. It reminds us of the, of the need of grace. It reminds us that, hey, we are not perfect, but thanks be to God who is perfect, who paid the price for our sins. But at the same time, we need to examine ourselves before we come. And why would self-examination be necessary? We'll keep reading. Verse 29. Paul says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You see, like the, the Corinthian Christians, if we fail to see the sacrifice that's found in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are, we are seeking out our own ambitions, then here's what's going to happen. When we come to the table, we will drink judgment upon ourselves. Again, Paul is bringing us back to intent. The Lord's Supper is not just a reminder of what Christ has done or a reminder of what we are called to do. But Paul says it should be a reminder to the believers of how we are now called to live in unity with the body. You see, we're called to now live this life together as one body of believers. 
And so think about this when you, when you come forward today as a believer and you begin to take part in the Lord's Supper. You are literally coming forward and not just being reminded of the grace and the goodness of God and the call that we have upon our lives to faithfully and sacrifice and, and sacrificially serve one another, but literally we're coming up and we can look at each other at that moment when we come up to the table to receive the elements and take them together. We are saying in this moment, I am with you and we are in this together. I mean, some of you guys come to the table and I watch, I pay attention. And you kind of make eye contact with folks across the aisle. You're going to line up, take communion. At that point, some of you kind of look to see who's coming up. And I don't think you're being judgmental. I think you just saw somebody and you're like, oh, I'm glad to see them. You should give them the nod of confidence. You know what I'm talking about? It's that whole, hey, no matter what happens, we're in this together, right? It's kind of like when you're flying now, you kind of look at the person across the aisle and you give the nod. Like if something happens on this plane, we're in this together, right? Because ain't nobody getting through that secure door. It's the same thing. Maybe it's the look you give as a mom and dad to one another. Your kids are going nuts and you look at them, each other, and you go, hey, no matter what, we're in this together. We chose one another. The kids are a consequence of that choice. But we are in this together. Maybe a better way to put it is how Thomas Schreiner said it, so I'll quote him. Maybe those will hit the point. He says, indeed, Christ by his death made all believers one. Those who fail to perceive the significance of Christ's broken body and the unity of the church will incur judgment. You see, it was the Corinthian Christians who, in this moment, acted in a way that contradicted the unity that they claimed to believe in. Their selfishness was literally splitting apart the fabric of what Jesus Christ himself had united amongst the believers. And then we get to verse 30, a verse that has often been misapplied to different moments in our lives. But if we read it in context, we see that what's going on here is more of a a disciplinary judgment rather than a, a final judgment that Paul is speaking of. You see, Paul, in this judgment, is not talking about the believers here, or the unbelievers, excuse me. Rather, he's talking to those who claim to be believers, and yet they do not keep or refuse to keep what it is that the Lord has now called them to. And so Paul continues with what he means about the judgment of the Lord. Keep reading with me, verse 31. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Listen to what Paul's saying here in these four verses. He's saying, listen, you may be dealing with what you're dealing with because of your own doing, because of your own sin. Now, Before we take that too far, we need to reel it back in and understand that Paul is pointing to a disciplinary, remedial judgment that can be overcome. He's not talking about a a permanent judgment here in this moment. So we can't be the type of people going around and saying, oh, so you have a disease that's going to take your life? Well, chances are you have that because of your sin. And you think I'm crazy when I say that, but there are Christians around us who believe that. They'll look you in the eyes and say, your child is sick because of your sin. That's not how this works. What Paul is speaking to here is he's speaking to the consequences of our sin that will lead to consequences in life. However, this judgment is remedial. It can be overcome as forgiveness is sought and reconciliation and restoration begins to occur. Now again, this seems harsh, but let's remember who we're talking about here. 
We're talking about a sovereign God. A God who loves his people that he sent his son to die on a cross for their sins. But he's also the same God who will discipline his people. Psalm 94 verse 12 tells us, Blessed is the man whom you discipline. The you being the Lord. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. He even says it, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 tells us, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Why? Proverbs is going to answer that question. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son, in whom he delights. You see, God does not discipline us for the sake of punishment. God is not some sort of big bully staring down upon an anthill with a magnifying glass, seeking to devour and burn whomever he pleases. That's not what God does. God gives us discipline for correction. Why? Because he loves us. Paul even says in verse 32, he says, but when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, God is not judging us for eternity when we fail. Rather, he's disciplining his people to turn from their ways. In other words, the discipline that Paul is speaking of when it comes to the discipline of God is actually a form of mercy that comes from God. It's like one pastor once told me, he said, listen, talking to a bunch of young pastors, he said, don't be mad at God when he disciplines you. Rather, be grateful. Be grateful. However, you should be fearful when in your sin, God stops convicting you. You should be fearful when God stops disciplining you because he has now handed you over to your sin. And so in correction, see the love and the goodness of God. Man, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to ask you this question in, in all grace. When was the last time we did some self-examination over our own lives? Let me break that down a little further. In the midst of the hard, whatever the hard looks like for you, I can't define hard. I'm not going to try to define hard because your definition of hard may be very different from mine. And that's okay. We all have our own definition of hard. But in the midst of the hard, were you able to say, God, I know you are putting me through this for my good. Because God, I know you are with me. And I know you have a plan. You see, it's, it's easy to say where is God when we are in the midst uh, of the heart. It's easy to look around and say, well, where is God in the midst of being corrected for sin? But here's the truth. Even in the moment of correction and discipline, God is allowing the discipline. He's allowing the correction so that we can be restored. Brothers and sisters, that's an act of love. In discipline, God is revealing His mercy for His people. 
So Paul says, before you come to the table, examine yourself. Are you taking in grace? Are you being reminded at the table of the goodness of God? Or are you about to drink condemnation upon yourself? Which one will it be? From there, Paul continues. And after the examination, we get a word of grace as Paul invites the church to come together. And now we get to our fourth and final point, which is found in verses 33 and 34, which is the welcome. Notice how Paul here closes with a word of encouragement for the church. He says, so then, my brothers. By the way, that Greek word is adelphoi, my brothers and sisters. Let's get that right. So then, family of God, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Notice how Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to welcome one another. The word that we see is the word wait. He's saying, listen, wait for one another. Now again, this does not mean that the believers were taking the Lord's Supper at different times, okay? They were not being good Baptists in this moment saying, hey, if you miss lunch, you miss lunch. We are moving on. No. Paul was saying in this moment that he wanted the wealthy and the poor to come together to share what they had, to not overindulge, and to make sure that all of them together could participate in the Lord's Supper, which is an act of worship. You see, what Paul was calling the church to in this moment was he was calling them to serve one another. In fact, he says it this way. Listen, if you're just going to eat a meal, then do it at your own home. But here... In the church, when the body of believers come together for the Lord's Supper, we are doing this again together. So come together. And then Paul closes out in the second half of verse 34 by saying, and about other things, I will give directions when I come. Clearly, Paul had more to discuss, and it was a discussion that he wanted to have in person. So we see that Paul, in his love for the church, had every intent of coming back to be with the Corinthian Christians. I want us to pay attention to that, because often, and as we continue walk through 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians, and as you have seen by this point, Paul drops harsh words. And in this moment, these were tough words, but he was not being as harsh as he could have been or should have been. But I want us to pay attention to what Paul does. Paul doesn't just drop the hammer and then run away. Paul doesn't walk into the house of God, light the dynamite and say deuces and watch the thing blow up. Paul says, no, we're going we're gonna to struggle together. We're going we're gonna to walk through the hard together. In fact, if, if given the opportunity, I want you to know I'm coming back. I'm coming back to see you. Why would Paul say that? Because Paul loved the church. Paul loved the body of believers. And I want to ask you this morning, does this describe us? Do we love one another? Do we, do we, do we welcome one 
one another? Do we invite people to come and join with us at the table? Do we invite them to come and and join with us here at the church? Do we share the goodness of the gospel and live out the gospel in in our lives? In a new year, are we saying to people that this community is a community that we want to be a part of and at the same time we desire for you to be a part of it as well? Not because of us, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now again, I'm going to tell you, we're going to get an opportunity to do that this week. So again, as a shameless plug, we're going to be talking more about what it means to be a community of Christ. Okay? And it's going to happen in our gospel community. So if you're not a part of one, let me encourage you to be a part of one. And if you want to know more about them, let me encourage you to join us Wednesday night at 6.30 in this room. That is for all people. If you're a part of a gospel community, come. We want you here. You're, you're, if you go to the house where your gospel community is meeting, they're not meeting. And if they are, they won't. Right? They'll be here. If you're not a part of a gospel community, come. Because we're going to talk further about what it means to be a community of believers. We're going to talk more about what it means to to truly love one another and to serve one another and what that's going to look like as we move into 2024. Because, man, I'm going to give you a reality check here in a moment. We are all hopeful in a new year. And I am quite confident that all of us woke up on New Year's Day thinking, man, I am hopeful that 2024 is going to be a good year. But I want to go ahead and and say to you, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I I think 2024 is going to be a great year. I think 2024 is going to present some hardships as well. So the question I want to ask you today is the same question that's, that's being asked in our text, even in the hardships. Are we going to be able to look and say, God, even in this moment, you are good. God, even in this moment, you are sovereign. God, we may not like what's happening right now, but we, but we recognize this is a part of your providential plan. And so, God, we're going to continue to move forward with you. You see, for Paul, coming together at the Lord's table was not just another meal. He wanted the Lord's table to remind us of the price that had been paid. To remind us of the hope that we now have. To remind us of the, of the call to sacrifice and to serve one another. And the unity that we now share as believers in Christ. And yet here's what often happens. Like the Corinthian Christians, if we're not careful in our own selfishness, we will miss the moment of what it is the Lord has called us to as we come to the tables. And so here's my prayer. My prayer is this morning as we come to the tables together as we're about to do here in just a few moments, my prayer is that before we do, let's do some self-reflection. Maybe we've got uh, some sins that we need to confess before the Lord. Let's confess them. But let's also recognize that this table doesn't call us to perfection, but rather it bids us to come as we are because it was Jesus Christ's body that was broken. It was His blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so the table reminds us of that hope that we now share. You see, the table reminds us of God's fulfillment of his promises through Christ. It's the table that reminds us that we are together in our need for his grace and mercy. It is the tables that remind us to live for him now and to wait in wonder as we look to God's 
final fulfillment that will lead his people to spend eternity with him in his kingdom. The table is a reminder. I'll close with a quote from John Piper. He says it this way. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to receive from Christ the nourishment and strength and hope and joy that come from feasting our souls on all that he has purchased for us on the cross, especially his own fellowship. Man, we see the beauty and the wonder of the table, the hope that we now have, the call that has been placed upon us to serve, and the reminder that we are together in unity as we partake. That is the challenge and the call of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together.